0: Hi everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's episode of Becoming Multiplanetary. I'm one of your co-hosts, Rich LB, and with me today is Kage.
1: Hi everyone, thanks for joining us. Uh, I'm Kage, also one of the co-hosts of Becoming Multiplanetary.
0: And today we will be continuing our Humans in Space mega-series. If you'd like to join us as we record these episodes, make sure to join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash totalspace where you can then join our exclusive Discord and listen into us record Becoming Multiplanetary, or our other shows, Deep Dive with Miko, The Space Update with Ryan, Space Shorts with Edel and other hosts, and the new upcoming series, STEM Study Segment, with Astro Rodi. In particular, be sure to check out our recent interview with Dr. Jonathan Gardner from Nassar's Goddard Centre, and the Hope Probe Q&A we recently did for the English-speaking school Jess Primary in Dubai, United Arab Emirates. So now, let's get into today's episode and a bit more about this mega-series.
1: So this is the second part of an epic collaboration between Total Spaces Becoming Multiplanetary with Rich LB and Kage, and To the Future with Sichuan and Sebastian. In this series titled Humans in Space, Becoming Multiplanetary and To the Future will together explore the major milestones of humans reaching for the stars and later where we might find ourselves in the future, with every other episode on one channel or the other. The series started on To The Future, exploring the pioneers, the first humans in space, and the often perilous journey to get there. Today, in this episode, we will explore the travelers and the race to the moon. Next, Zhishuan and Sebastian will pick up again to explore surviving in space, taking a look at the age of the space stations, Skylab, Salyut, Mir, and finally the International Space Station. Then we'll pick back up again with This Decade, exploring the upcoming Artemis program and the Lunar Gateway. Then again back to Sichuan and Sebastian where they'll be looking to the future, pun completely intended, imagining SpaceX's Mars Colony 1 and what a future on Mars may look like. Then back to us again to explore Distant Future, exploring the possibilities of humanity inhabiting Titan and creating an outpost on Ganymede and then finally the series will close with to the future looking to the future yes pun intended again with humanity living among the stars and the inevitable rise of the terran space empire if such a thing is possible if you're not familiar with to the future make sure to check out their youtube channel now go ahead we'll pause here and wait So welcome back, and let's quickly recap uh, what Jishuan and Sebastian talked about.
0: So, in last week's episode over on To The Future's channel, Jishuan and Sebastian introduced the mega-series and talked about the origins of humans in space, all the way back to ancient cave drawings that showed early humans' fascination with the movement of celestial bodies in the heavens. They then moved on to talking about the first liquid-fueled rocket concept, following that up with the beginning of the space race after the launch of Sputnik 1. We even get to hear about the formation and establishment of NASA, Yuri Gagarin's 50-50 space gamble, and the beginning of the moon race, which is where we here at Becoming Multiplanetary will be picking up from today. And with that, let's get into the Apollo missions!
1: Ah, uh, wait, not yet.
0: Right, okay, okay. So. When we talk about the race to the moon, the first thing everyone thinks of is Apollo, naturally. But it's worth mentioning first that there was a project barely known until 1997 that was also due to happen at the dawn of the Apollo era and had its roots even prior to the missions. This project was called the Lunex Project. This project was one of the US Air Forces back in 1958 for a crewed lunar landing prior to the Apollo program. The final lunar expedition plan in 1961 was for a 21-person underground air force base on the moon by 1968, at an estimated total cost of $7.5 billion, and that's adjusted for inflation. The Lunex Lunar Lander, try saying that three times fast, vehicle was designed for a direct lunar entry using the full vehicle, whereas the Apollo missions had a separate module that would detach from lunar orbit for the descent, and had a crew complement of three people. The crew return vehicle itself bears a striking resemblance to the modern day Sierra Nevada Dream Chaser, being a, a small lifting body space plane. Because the Lunex lander vehicle had a direct ascent profile, it eliminated the complexities of lunar orbit rendezvous required later on by the Apollo missions. The downside to this was that a larger rocket would be needed then to send this to the moon. Now, as for the specifications of the the lander itself, it could hold a crew of three. It was 16.16 meters long, or 53.01 feet. The diameter of the craft at the widest point was 7.62 meters, or 24.99 feet, and the span of the craft was also the same, 7.62 meters. The mass of the whole craft was 61,000 kilograms, and that equates to about 134,000 pounds. And of course, it was developed by the US Air Force. Now, in terms of where they were going to put this base, there was a selection of sites to be selected by the use of automated probes to be deployed across the lunar surface. And Kepler Crater was a location which was being studied as a potential candidate location for the site.
1: The Lunex project planned to make its first lunar landing and return in 1967. This had a public goal of beating the Soviet Union in the race of the moon, but this was an Air Force mission which means it was not a mission focused on science, but on military purposes. When the program was declassified finally in 1997, it became known that LUNEX sought to have a permanent lunar base by 1968, replete with a uh, 300-kilowatt-hour nuclear power generator and other unspecified military equipment. Additionally, because NASA and Apollo were not bound by so much secrecy, that brought endless uh, industrial and research advantages. The same would not be nearly as possible with a military lunar mission that was, of course, bound by secrecy. So there were several planned milestones or prestiges uh, for the Lunex project. In April of 1965 would be the first manned orbital flight with the three manned space vehicle. By July 1966 would be the first lunar landing cargo. Uh, September 1966 would be the manned circumlunar flight and then in August 1967 would be a manned lunar landing and return, with finally in 1968, January 1968, permanently uh, landing a uh, manned lunar expedition. Ultimately, Lunex was abandoned because it was just far more complex than Apollo, with a much more aggressive and pretty much unrealistic schedule. Lunex depended on technology that would not mature for another decade, and it would have a cost 1.5 times as much as Apollo. Maybe higher uh, cost for a decade of no results works for today's NASA, but in the race for the moon, uh, it demanded immediate results at a low cost. And so Apollo was chosen. So now do we get to Apollo? Not yet. (laughs) Before we get to Apollo, this was a race after all and for a race to happen there has to be some competition and nasa's competition was the cccp the soviet union and their soviet crewed lunar programs that's programs plural as early as 1961 soviet leadership was already planning and even publicly announcing their intent to land cosmonauts on the moon however Planning did not really start until years later with the Proton-K rocket based on an intercontinental ballistic missile and its Soyuz 7K L1 or ZOND spacecraft and the N1 rocket and its Soyuz 7K LOK spacecraft and LK lander. The ZOND spacecraft was planned to carry two cosmonauts at a time for a total of seven missions to the moon. However, none of these would land on the surface as they were only designed for circumlunar orbit. In fact, it's not exactly clear what value these flybys would bring to the space race. And this even led to major infighting among the Soviet party leadership, Vladimir uh, Kilomi, Uh, The chief architect of the Proton-K rocket and Sergei Korolev, a lead rocket engineer and considered the godfather of the Soviet space program, viciously fought over the Proton-K, with Korolev calling it a waste of valuable resources that should instead be focused on landing on the moon, coincidentally with Korolev's own N1 rocket. Thankfully, the Zond never carried any crew, as its four missions all ended up in failures that would have seriously injured or killed everyone on board. The program was eventually cancelled by 1970.
0: Following the Soviet leadership change from Nikita Khrushchev to Leonid Brezhnev, Korolev was put in charge of the Soviet lunar programs, where he ultimately cancelled the Proton K and Soyuz 7K L1 Zond. It's worth noting that Korolev was considered so critical to the Soviet space program, practically his very existence was a state secret, and his involvement was not even well known until decades after his death. With its priorities now clear, the Soviet Union then set its full focus on the N-1 rocket and the Soyuz 7K LOK spacecraft and LK lander. The N-1 L-3 program, where L-3 was the four-element combination of the upper rocket stages and spacecraft, would carry two cosmonauts to lunar orbit, with its LK lander bringing only one to the surface. In 1966, two cosmonaut training groups were formed. The first was commanded by Vladimir Komarov, which included Yuri Gagarin, destined for the Proton-K rocket, and the Soyuz 7K L1 Zond. After Komarov died in a tragic accident aboard Soyuz 1 when his descent module crashed after a parachute failure, Gagarin was taken out of the program, and the groups were restructured. The other group was commanded by Alexei Leonov, the first man to perform a spacewalk, and this group was destined for the surface of the moon. It's almost certain that had the Soviets made it to the moon, Leonov would have been the one to set foot on its surface. A total of 18 N1L3 missions were planned, with the first four being unmanned, and the fifth flight most likely being the one to carry Leonov. Unfortunately, that destiny never came to be as the N1 failed all four of its launch attempts. The first two in 1969, just before the Apollo 11 launch and landing, ultimately leading to the end of the N1L3 program by the mid-1970s. Okay, so now can we get to Apollo?
1: Well, yes, but actually no we got to talk about the Big Chungus rocket first. <laughs> <laughs> Standing 40 meters taller than the Saturn V and over twice as wide would have been the Sea Dragon. This absolute behemoth would have been the largest and most powerful rocket ever built and was the largest rocket ever fully conceived, capable of carrying a whopping 550 tons to low earth orbit in comparison to saturn V's 140 tons it had the highest conceptualized payload capacity of any rocket until spacex's starship in fact if it was ever built it likely would have been one day certified for manned missions to mars
0: okay now can we get to apollo
1: all right all right yes all right
0: and now we'll get to the main event the travelers <clears throat> We'll start first with one of the most well-known, and also the most tragic, Apollo mission, Apollo 1. Apollo 1, initially designated AS204, was slated to be the first crewed mission of the United States Apollo program. It was scheduled to launch on February 21st, 1967 as the first manned low earth orbit test of the Apollo CSM command and service module atop the Saturn 1B rocket. Unfortunately, due to a cabin fire during a dress rehearsal, the three astronauts that were to fly this mission lost their lives. These were Command Pilot Gus Grissom, Senior Pilot Ed White, and Pilot Roger B. Chaffee. After this incident, The mission was renamed from AS204, which was its initial designation, to Apollo 1 in their honor. 10,
1: 9, ignition sequence start. 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. All engine running.
0: Next were Apollo's two and three. These were planned unmanned flights, but were canceled after the Apollo one tragedy.
1: And then after that came Apollo four or AS-501, marking the first unmanned Saturn five flight and the first flight of a Saturn from launch complex 39. This was a all up test, meaning the entire Saturn five stack would fly together for the first time. Its mission was a success, launching on November 9, 1967 for an eight hour, 36 minute mission. Apollo 5 came next and flew successfully on January 22nd, 1968, marking the first unmanned lunar module flight aboard a Saturn 1B rocket. Because Apollo 1 never flew, its mission designation of AS204 was now assigned to Apollo 5. Apollo 6, or AS502, was the second unmanned flight of the Saturn V carrying a CSM, a lunar module test article, and a simulated lunar module. Flying on April 4th, 1968, this was only a partially successful mission. Two minutes into its flight profile, the Saturn V experienced severe pogo oscillations where combustion pressure increases back pressure against the fuel being injected in a high frequency oscillation effect, which damaged uh, engines in the second and third stages by rupturing internal fuel lines. Even in spite of this failure, NASA deemed the Saturn V successful and with some repairs and modifications to be made, ready for manned missions.
0: Apollo 7 saw the dropping of the AS mission designation and would see the first return to crewed space flights out of the US since the Apollo 1 tragedy, the last human flight being Gemini 12 in 1966 with James Lovell Jr and Buzz Aldrin, who would go on later to fly aboard Apollo 11. On the 11th of October 1968, mission commander Walter M. Shearer, along with command module pilot Don F. Isley, and the Lunar Module pilot R. Walter Cunningham launched in the Apollo CSM aboard a Saturn-1B rocket in what would be a crewed Earth Orbital CSM flight. Interestingly enough, R. Walter Cunningham was designated his title even though there was no Lunar Module present aboard Apollo 7. Total flight time of the Apollo 7 was 10 days, 20 hours, 9 minutes and 3 seconds. The crew splashed down in the Atlantic Ocean, was recovered by the USS Essex, and the CSM was then taken for extensive testing. This mission also saw the first live television
1: broadcast from aboard a crewed American spacecraft. Then came Apollo 8, which was the first crewed spacecraft to leave low Earth orbit and also the first manned spacecraft to reach another astronomical body, in this case, the moon, which the crew orbited without landing before making the return journey to Earth orbit and then uh, splashdown in the North Pacific Ocean. Manned by Frank F. Borman II, James Lovell Jr. and William Anders, the rocket launched on December 21, 1968 and took a total of 68 hours to travel the distance to the moon. Once they arrived, they proceeded to orbit the moon for a total of 10 times over the course of 20 some odd hours, during which the crew appeared in a Christmas Eve television broadcast in which they read the first 10 verses uh, from the Bible's book of Genesis. At the time of its airing, the broadcast was the most watched TV program ever. The crew then returned home to Earth and splashed down in the northern Pacific Ocean, with the mission lasting a total of six days, three hours, and 42 seconds. Upon their return, the members of the crew were named Time Magazine's Men of the Year for 1968.
0: That brings us to Apollo 9. Apollo 9 was a crewed mission to test the Lunar Module's propulsion, rendezvous, and docking, as well as a scheduled EVA to test the PLSS, which is the Portable Life Support System. Crewed by Commander James McDivitt, Command Module Pilot David Scott, and Lunar Module Pilot Rusty Schweickart, the Saturn V, carrying the CSM and LM, launched on March 3, 1969. This marked the first time the full vehicle, including the lunar module, had been launched into space. Now, whilst Apollo 9 never left Earth orbit, it did perform a series of flight readiness tests, which involved the rendezvous, docking, and extraction of the lunar module. Schweikart tested the PLSS during a scheduled EVA along with the EMU, which is the extravehicular mobility unit built into their backpacks to move around Following some leisurely tests of the CSM after thoroughly testing the lunar module, the crew came to full splashdown in the North Atlantic Ocean on March 13, 1969, making the total mission duration 10 days, one hour and 54 seconds.
1: So then Apollo 10 launched on May 18, 1969 and was a dress rehearsal mission for the eventual Apollo 11 landing mission. While command module pilot John Young remained in the CSM orbiting the moon, Thomas Stafford and Gene Cernan flew the lunar module within 8.4 nautical miles of the surface. Apollo 10 set the record for highest speed attained by a crewed vehicle mission call signs were the Peanuts characters, Charlie Brown and Snoopy, who became the unofficial mascots for the mission thanks to Peanuts creator Charles Schultz who also drew artwork for NASA. Due to the folks at NASA knowing the types of characters that Stafford and Cernan were, NASA purposefully short fueled the lunar ascent stage to prevent an attempt at landing. Had they tried to land on the moon, they literally would not have had enough fuel uh, to leave. So after orbiting the moon for a total of 31 times, Apollo 10 returned safely to the Earth and splashed down in the Pacific Ocean, roughly in the area of Samoa and the Cook Islands on May 26, 1969. The total mission lasted eight days, three minutes and 23 seconds.
0: And then that brings us to the big one, folks. The uh, Apollo mission where the moon landing finally happened. Uh, It began with a launch. At 1332 GMT on the 16th of July 1969, on board a Saturn V rocket, Mission Commander Neil Armstrong, Command Module Pilot Michael Collins, and Lunar Module Pilot Buzz Aldrin sat aboard the Columbia, which was the designation for the CSM at the time, and rode that, launch from the pad to space, and ultimately into the history books as what was to be the first lunar landing. But this mission was almost not a success. While attempting to land, Armstrong and Aldrin had to spend a lot of time searching for a suitable location which burned almost all of their fuel. Though they were just 15 seconds away from being forced to abort before finally touching down on July 20th, 1969. And succeed they did, with Apollo 11's landing marked NASA crossing the finish line, thus ending the race to the moon. But NASA wasn't done yet.
1: Nope, they were not done. And they continued on with Apollo 12, which was the sixth crewed flight mission of the Apollo program and the second one to land on the moon. It was planned to be the mission that would land on the moon had Apollo 11 failed, but since that succeeded, The rest of the Apollo missions were put on a more relaxed schedule. Launching at 1622 UTC on November 14, 1969, two months later than originally planned, the Saturn V SA-502 that carried Commander Pete Conrad, Lunar Module Pilot Alan Bean, and Command Module Pilot Richard Gordon was almost immediately fraught with problems. At 36 and a half seconds into liftoff, the Saturn V was struck by lightning and then was struck again 15 and a half seconds later. These lightning strikes knocked out all three fuel cells and disrupted the eight ball attitude indicator and also garbled telemetry being sent to mission control. Thankfully, the Saturn V remained on course with the lightning strikes not affecting the onboard guidance system. The boards in front of the astronauts were flashing with alarms everywhere and no one could tell exactly what was wrong. The mission was saved by EECOM John Aaron, who recognized the telemetry failure pattern from an earlier test. That's when Aaron made the call Flight, EECOM, try SCE to aux. This switch was so obscure, few knew about it, but Lunar Module Pilot Bean did, and as soon as he flipped the signal conditioning electronic switch to aux, telemetry came back online all while riding several million kilograms of controlled explosives accelerating them to space. Amazing. While Apollo 12's command service module, Yankee Clipper, stayed in orbit around the moon, its lunar module, Intrepid, would go on to safely land on November 19th at the Mare Cognitum portion of the Oceanus Procalorum, later named to Surveyor Crater after the Surveyor probe that landed there in April 1967. In fact, Bean's landing was so precise, it put them within walking distance of the surveyor lander, which Bean and Conrad would later go to inspect. With their mission a success, Bean, Conrad, and Gordon would uh, safely return to the Earth on November 20th.
0: Which brings us on to Apollo 13. Apollo 13 was a very troubled mission, and two movies were made about it. The mission began with the launch on April the 11th 1970 and the launch into orbit seemed to go pretty smoothly. It wasn't until about two days into the mission that things started to take a turn for the worse. At this time a routine scheduled task with the oxygen tank caused an explosion that vented the contents of both of the service modules oxygen tanks into space. Without these tanks to provide supplemental oxygen and for breathing and for generating electric power, the service module's propulsion and life support systems couldn't operate. In order to try to bring the crew home live, they shut down the command module's systems and transferred them into the lunar module where the crew used the lunar module as a lifeboat, if you will. At this point, it was a foregone conclusion that the lunar landing event would be cancelled, and the mission shifted gears into one where the rescue of the crew and bringing them home to Earth was considered to be the top priority. From this point until the crew's eventual splashdown in the South Pacific Ocean, the crew and ground control worked together very closely to try and engineer solutions to enable the lunar module to sustain the three crew members for the duration of the return flight from the moon. By the time the astronauts were splashing down in the ocean on April 17, 1970, Tens of millions were watching it on television.
1: Apollo 14 would mark the eighth crewed Apollo mission and the third one to land on the moon. Originally scheduled for 1970, Apollo 14 was delayed until early 1971 due to investigations into Apollo 13's failure and subsequent repairs being made to Apollo 14. Commander Alan Shepard Command Module Pilot Stuart Rusa and Lunar Module Pilot Edgar Mitchell launched on January 31st, 1971 for their nine-day mission aboard the Command Service Module Kitty Hawk and its Lunar Module Antares. After launch, everything seemed to be nominal, but Apollo 14 was also fraught with problems. First, when attempting to mate with the Lunar Module Antares, uh, with the uh, Command Module uh, Kitty Hawk, They were unsuccessful due to issues with the probe and drogue system. After an unplanned mating method, a hard docking rather than the mission's planned soft docking, the two spacecraft were docked and the mission could resume. But later, shortly after Antares undocked from Kitty Hawk, the abort guidance system or AGS, typically called AGS), began receiving abort signals due to a faulty switch. From the faulty hardware and the abort sequence being literally woven into the Apollo software, Mission Control had to come up with a clever hack to bypass the abort signal and make the Ag's computer think it was already in abort sequence so it would ignore further uh, signals to abort. While that did work, it created another problem during the power descent Causing the lunar module landing radar to fail to lock onto the moon's surface, which was vital to land safely. With a few cycles of the landing radar circuit breaker, signal acquisition finally occurred at 6.7 kilometers above the surface, which was really cutting it close because of the mission profile requiring an abort at three kilometers if no radar lock-on could occur. Thankfully. The greatest computer hack of all time brought the mission to a success, allowing Commander Alan Shepard to land Antares on February 5th, 1971 in the Fra Mauro Formation, originally the target of Apollo 13. But before returning safely to Earth on February 9th, Shepard created one more incident for Apollo 14, where he hit two golf balls from the lunar surface using a makeshift golf club that he had smuggled aboard. (laughs) And then,
0: with that, let's get on to Apollo 15. Now, Apollo 15 launched on July 26th, 1971, and was crewed by Mission Commander David Scott, Command Module Pilot Alfred Worden, and Lunar Module Pilot James Irwin aboard the CSM-designated Endeavour. This mission actually ran quite successfully and saw the first use of the Lunar Roving Vehicle, or the Moon Buggy, as it was dubbed by the crew. Upon landing on the moon aboard the LM-designated Falcon, David Scott and James Irwin spent 18.5 hours on the lunar surface thanks to the moon buggy and managed to collect 170 pounds, or 77 kilos, of surface material to return with them. They splashed down in the North Pacific Ocean on August 7th, 1971, and were recovered by the USS Okinawa. Apollo 15 did also mark the first ever deep space EVA, and this would become commonplace over the remaining J-type missions that were Apollo 16 and 17 respectively, which Kage will go in depth about now.
1: Yeah. Uh, Speaking of Apollo 16, uh, that was the 10th crewed mission of the Apollo program and the fifth one to land on the moon. Crewed by Commander John Young, Lunar Module Pilot Charles Duke, and command module pilot Ken Mattingly. It launched at 1754 UTC on April 16, 1972. While in lunar orbit, they also released a subsatellite from the service module to perform scientific observations. Young and Duke would go on to land successfully at 223 UTC on April 21, 1972 in the Descartes Highlands, region west of Mare Nectaris and the crater Alphonsus. During the return journey from the moon, Mattingly would perform the second deep space EVA to retrieve film cassettes from the service module's scientific instruments module, or SIMBE, 320,000 kilometers from Earth. Additionally, Mattingly also set up a biological experiment, the Microbial Ecology Evaluation Device, or MEED, which was an experiment unique to Apollo 16. Apollo 16 then returned safely to Earth on April 24th, 1972. Apollo
0: 17 ended up being the final crewed mission to the Moon for quite some time, though at the time, no one would know quite how long it would actually take before we got back to the Moon. This mission saw Commander Eugene Cernan, Command Module Pilot Ronald Evans, and Lunar Module Pilot Harrison Schmidt liftoff in the America CSM aboard a Saturn V SA-512. Cernan and Schmidt went on to go down to the lunar surface aboard the lunar module designated Challenger and would proceed to stay there for extravehicular activities totaling over 22 hours. Once Cernan and Schmidt were back aboard America, they departed lunar orbit for home, coming to splashdown in the South Pacific Ocean on December 19th, 1972. This was to mark the end of crude flights to the moon for quite some time, though I imagine not a single person who heard Cernan's last words before leaving the lunar surface will forget them in the hurry. I'm on the surface, and as I take man's last step from the surface back home for some time to come, but we believe not too long. Not too into- long
1: into the I'd like to just let what I believe history will record that America's challenge of today has forged man's destiny of tomorrow. And as we leave the moon in
0: taurus literal, we leave as we came, and God willing, as we shall return, with peace and hope for all mankind.
1: speed the crew of Apollo 17. Godspeed indeed. Apollos 18 through 20 were also planned, but at this point, public interest in exploring the moon had faded and Congress was no longer interested in spending the extraordinary amount of money for a race that was already won several times over. Apollo 18 would have been crewed by Richard Gordon, Commander, Vance Brand, Command Module Pilot, and Harrison Schmidt, Lunar Module Pilot, with Apollo 19 being crewed by Fred Heise, uh, Commander, William Pogue, Command Module Pilot, and Gerald Carr, Lunar Module Pilot. And finally, Apollo 20 would have been crewed by Charles Conrad, Commander, Paul Weitz, uh, Command Module Pilot, and Jack Lusma, Lunar Module Pilot. Even though these astronauts never flew their designated Apollo missions 18 through 20, they did go on to fly other missions. For example, Harrison Schmidt was reassigned to Apollo 17 and Vance Brand would become the command module pilot of the Apollo-Soyuz test project, the final mission of the Apollo program and the last crewed space flight from US soil until the first launch of the space shuttle on April 12, 1981. It was also the last crewed US spaceflight in a capsule until SpaceX's Crew Dragon Demo-2 mission in May 2020, a long, long time later. Apollo-Soyuz was the first crewed international space mission carried out jointly by the United States and the Soviet Union in 19 uh, in July 1975 as a means of detenta or de-escalation of, te- of tensions. Uh, between the two Cold War superpowers on the Soyuz side It was crewed by Alexei Leonov uh, who was the commander and Valery uh, Kubasov who was the flight engineer you might recognize one of those names Alexei Leonov Who would most likely have been the cosmonaut to set foot on the moon had the N1 L3 succeeded as we mentioned earlier on the Apollo side it was crewed by Thomas P Stafford the commander Vance D Brand the command module pilot and Deke Slayton The docking module pilot. Deke Slayton was one of the original NASA Mercury 7 astronauts, but was grounded in 1962 due to an atrial fibrillation or an irregular heart rhythm. Where he went on to become the first chief of the astronaut office and director of flight crew operations responsible for NASA crew assignments. After the Apollo 15 postal cover scandal and after being cleared by doctors around the world and the Mayo Clinic Slayton finally returned to flight status and joined the crew of Apollo Soyuz Marking Slayton's only space flight and a well-earned one indeed Apollo Soyuz or called Soyuz Apollo or simply Soyuz 19 in the Soviet Union Had a successful docking on July 17, 1969 at 1619 UTC thus marking the start of peaceful international relations in space that have lasted ever since. This mission also provided lots of useful engineering experience that were used later for U.S.-Russia joint programs, including Shuttle Mir and the International Space Station, a topic that Zhishuan and Sebastian will cover in the next episode on To the Future. Now, for a side question, what would things have looked like if the N1 succeeded and Leonov was the first one to set foot on the moon. There's actually a newer series now in its second season on Apple TV called For All Mankind that explores exactly this alternative timeline. It even shows what a Sea Dragon launch probably would have looked like had it ever been built. It's a really great series and I highly recommend it.
0: And that's all for today's episode of Becoming Multiplanetary, covering the second part of this seven-part mega-series collaboration with To The Futures, Jishuan and Sebastian. Be sure to check out their YouTube channel next week to catch the third episode, Surviving in Space, where they'll explore humans learning to survive in space for longer durations, covering the evolution of the early space stations through today's International
1: Space Station. Yep. And with that, I'd like to thank you all for joining us. I am Kage, one of the co-hosts of Becoming Multiplanetary. Be sure to check us out on our website, totalspace.net, as well as uh, check out our social media, which you can find on totalspace.net, and you can find us on Twitter, for example, uh, at uh, totalspacenet. And thanks for that, Kage. Uh,
0: I've been Rich LB. Thank you for joining us today on this episode of Becoming Multiplanetary. And as always, at the end of every episode, I like to take a moment of time to thank all of our Patreons. Your guys' contributions really do make it all happen here at Total Space. And to list the people that make it happen here at Total Space, we have what about it? We have To the Future. We have Adrian Moissa, We have Anthony Mann. We have Framric Gio Pagliari. Howard Walker, Marco Makuch, Stinger N S W, Susie R, The Angry
1: Astronaut, and Warhawk. And if you would like to become a patron, uh, just uh, go to Patreon.com/TotalSpace. And with that, you not only get to uh, support us, which we are deeply thankful to everyone that does support us. Thank you so much again. But you also get to listen in uh, while we record these episodes in our exclusive Discord. So, until next time. Make sure to check out uh, "To the Future" with Jishwan and Sebastian for the next episode, and then we'll see you after that. Take care! Thanks for joining us.
0: See you next time.